and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. I'm your host, Chi Ryan, and in this episode, I'm speaking to researcher Steve Portigal. Steve is the principal of Portigal Consulting and the author of two books, Interviewing Users, How to Uncover Compelling Insights, and Doorbells, Danger, and Dead Batteries, User Research War Stories. Based outside San Francisco, Steve helps companies to think and act strategically as a result of human insights. Steve hosts his own podcast, Dollars to Donuts, where he interviews people who lead user research in their organizations. Throughout his career, Steve has interviewed hundreds of people, including families eating breakfast, hotel maintenance staff, architects, rock musicians, home automation enthusiasts, credit default swap traders, and radiologists. His work has informed the development of mobile devices, medical information systems, music gear, wine packaging, financial services, corporate internets, and video conferencing systems. Wowzers. Steve has really done a lot of things. But before we get into this episode with Steve, we're actively looking for podcast sponsors. 100% of the money raised goes directly to Caracare, an incredible NGO who supports children who have suffered abuse. Get in touch to find out more via our website, thisishcd.com. You can also donate directly by clicking on the dollar sign inside the media player on the thisishcd.com website. Welcome to the show, Steve. So great to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about your experience with human-centered design? Yeah, I uh, work for myself. Uh, I run a tiny consultancy. I guess if it's just myself, that would make it pretty tiny. Just outside of San Francisco. And the work that I do is helping companies learn about their customers and figure out what to do with that information, and also just get better at that as an overall practice for their organization. Uh, I've been running this business since 2001, so I've been doing this work for a while. I worked at other agencies and and all that. We we don't need to go back to the prehistoric era, but uh, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now. So you started out when you were what? 10? Oh, go on. <laughs> I know. I, I was so young when I started out. I was, I was literally a baby. So th- this, this <laughs> is a good rapport building technique, by the way, right? It's just it's open up with flattery. <laughs> it gets you everywhere. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you started out and how you got interested in this world that we, we inhabit. Yeah, I sort of found my way serendipitously or kind of backwards you know, I was a computer science undergraduate because I thought that was about making things. And it may be nowadays, but back in my day, it was very heavily on the science part and it was extremely theoretical. And uh, I really struggled with that as kind of an academic direction. And I remember the last year, I, I, there was a computer graphics course. I thought, oh, that's kind of an um, emerging area. And, um, and as part of that course, they gave us a little introduction to... HCI to human computer interaction and 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 what blew my mind then was this this idea that we you know we take for granted now but this idea that the person who makes a thing has not just an opportunity but also an obligation to make the thing in a way that the person who uses that thing uh, can succeed and I remember the professor talking to us oh if you see someone that doesn't know whether to push or pull a revolving door or get stuck in a revolving door or you know can't see where the steps are you know going up and down a staircase and you know stumbles or trips that's the fault of the person that made it and that was such a huge reframe for me i was kind of in that 
era of personal computers where if you knew how to use it, you would sort of lord that over the people that didn't. That was just, I don't know, a cultural norm that I was part of. So that really opened things up for me. And, and the fact that there was a whole discipline about human-computer interaction that that was meant to learn about people and then figure out kind of how to best make things for them. I didn't know the word design. This was before the web. You know, software as an industry was very technical. I didn't know about market research. Like I really had a very limited view of the business world and, and sort of what the professional world could be. But that sort of sent me off into a you know graduate education in human-computer interaction and and then trying to figure out how to apply that in the professional world was was certainly challenging. But I was very fortunate to end up at an industrial design consultancy that was at the same time they were trying to design software as part of how they were serving clients. They were also experimenting with ethnography, this buzzword that uh, we also called it uh, the fuzzy front end or the front end of innovation. There were a lot of funny terms being thrown around in the 90s, but it was this idea that yeah, you could help companies figure out what to make and how to make it and you would do this, this upfront research and you would also do evaluative research. You also would see if the thing that you were making would work for people. And this was you know, a hard sell at first. It wasn't what companies were looking for. It wasn't what their processes were. And it wasn't what they thought this agency could provide. But, you know, over time, this starts to become a, a standalone part of the business. And, um, you know, I was able to learn. And it's an interesting way to learn because it's not like any of us knew what we were doing. So I was kind of along for the ride as as this was being developed as a practice. And we were... You know, it was a Silicon Valley industrial design company. So what they were typically doing was putting like plastic boxes around circuitry. That's kind of what a lot of that business was, or you know, figuring out how to create medical devices that would have some injection molded something something. And then we started doing projects like uh, helping a a breakfast foods company think about the sort of occasion and the sort of symbolism and meaning of breakfast in a different way that led to new products. And so the business started to sort of, we started to do interesting kinds of work and have those opportunities. And I started to see, you know, sort of how to find my own place in going into people's lives, their homes and their work and interviewing them and observing them and finding what those patterns were and being able to make recommendations to companies about, you know, how they could, act on what we learned. Well, you make a really good case for why research is important. And I wonder, at what point do you think that companies start to realise the value of working in this way, of looking at their their customers and the people that are in their ecosystem in a more human way? Yeah, that's a thing that I've been interested in. So when does this happen or what are the conditions that make it happen? And the answer to that question has changed over time, right? You could go back to a point where like it was never or rarely or, you know, until something catastrophic happened, you know, some failure. I think now it's getting baked in into, you know, earlier on so that, you know, a tipping point might not even be the right metaphor. I think it's so much tied to the ascendancy of design. You know, I like to separate design and research, but I think there's points at which they sort of get combined into one thing. And as design starts to be part of how new companies are forming, they're either being started by designers or they're being started with designers 
or design becomes like a key hire for, you know, like big financial services companies that want to reinvent themselves or, you know, try to catch up with where the culture or where their user base has moved. I think you see some element of involving users in the process coming in at the same time. So, I mean, I think the sort of the the short answer is well, it's sort of everywhere. The tipping point has happened, and it's just it's table stakes now. I think the more cynical part of that, or the, the caveat to that, is it's still the way that companies are bringing users into their design processes is still maybe more naive. It's still more closed ended. I think we. Every, the word testing is a word that I sort of cringe when I hear because testing is sort of the <laughs> the placeholder for anything that anybody would ever do. Well, yes, we really, really believe in our users. We test everything with them. And I don't mean that testing is bad, but testing is not everything. Testing is not how you know a culture aligns around what the lives and passions and concerns and fears of their customers really are. It's how they kind of ship things to minimize failure, which is good. Like we should be happy about that. So I'm still looking for that tipping point where there's kind of a richer belief in customers and insights about them and process to make that happen. That are really you know where that's a strategic tool, where that's you know a big part of how the company, the organization, kind of moves along. I think you see it happen sometimes when. there's a change at the highest levels, like they bring in somebody who worked at another company where there was a lot of user-centered design processes, and they start making change. You know that that often it's kind of kept at a sort of service level until something happens at a larger level, uh, you know, higher up in the organization where someone wants to to change the way that the company is going about it, and that person is maybe not a designer, maybe not a researcher, but you know, as maybe a, a product person or just an overall uh, kind of, you know, an operations person, some executive that's really thinking about how does this company work and what are we not doing right and, and trying to create some change. I want to ask you about making that happen in organizations. But before I ask you that question, you mentioned separating design and research. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I'm... A research person, it's what I do, it's what I write about, it's what I advocate for. And I think, you know, researchers need to, as individuals and as a process, I sort of want us to fly our flag and not get sort of folded into sort of the the larger conversation about design. There's a lot of uh, good conversations about, you know, how do you manage designers? How do you create, you know, career paths for them? How do you hire them? Uh, how do you create an environment where designers can succeed in a technical culture? For example, there's a lot of stuff about that. Those things aren't the same for researchers. Research people that are drawn to research bring with them different personality types and different skills and different ways of thinking about problems and different language and different backgrounds. And so from just from a purely, you know, managing a team point of view, I think that's an example where research needs to be considered separately. You know, and I feel like research is an activity, but it's also a skill set or a role or an individual. And, uh, you know, I think as a field, I think we struggle with, uh, 
you know, there's the activity of research, which anyone can do, and designers do research, and product managers do research, and you know, any sort of role can do that. But then also you have researchers getting hired in. So what do researchers do if everyone can do research? So part of me is just wanting to sort of advocate for the specialness and the separateness. Because uh, I think, you know, research is a special skill set. And there's, you know, when I think about that, that divide that I want to hold on to, or, or is it a role or is it a, a skill, I believe that everyone should be doing it, but I think there is, you know, certain types of problems, certain types of situation where there's a complexity, where you need that expertise. And I want to just acknowledge and advocate for that's an expertise that maybe someone who can do a decent job at, say, running a usability test, you know, or showing their designs to somebody and getting feedback, let's not even call it a usability test, that designer may have all the skills that they require to kind of do a great job with what they're doing. But there are other types of problems, other types of questions, other types of initiatives where you need someone who has different skill sets. And let's just call that person a researcher. So yeah, I think given the types of problems and the the roles and you know how people are rewarded, incentivized, managed, encouraged, facilitated, those are just, I don't know, some of the reasons why I want to consider those as separate types of things. Well, it's interesting because on the weekend I was in Toronto at a conference called the Design X Leadership Summit and Jared Spool was on stage and he spoke about everyone being a designer. Right. And this is, I think there's a parallel between these two things because like you, I come from a background of industrial design and architecture actually. And, and so I really do believe in the fundamental disciplines of design, whether it be visual design, industrial design and so on. And I think that everybody can participate in the design process, but I think that everyone being a designer is a little bit of a misnomer. So I really like uh, what you're saying about research being a discipline unto itself. And I think, um, you know, you said that you have a, a science background. It's no wonder because I think research in science is so different in a lot of ways, same but different. You know, I think scientists who are out there doing research on various different things would probably think that, you know, doing a little bit of research on the side of a design project, you know, might not exactly be the same thing. So it feels very similar to the the struggles that designers are going through in terms of everyone being a designer. It's a great analogy, a great comparison. So getting back to the other question, how can we help our clients or the people that we're working with understand the value of research? Yeah, I don't have an easy answer for that. I mean, if there was an easy answer, I guess the question wouldn't need to be asked, right? I mean, I think some there's some paths to success that I've seen, you know, people go through. You know, some of it is uh, managing up. And so, you know, how do you successfully manage up? Uh, how do you get people's attention a little bit? How do you show them value? How do you give them kind of experience and exposure? You know, I mean, I think this is maybe the researcher answer to that question or starts with trying to understand what are the barriers? What are the blockers that, you know, it's, it's a framing of the, of the problem to say, well, they don't see the value in research. Maybe they do see the value in research, but they're ranking it lower than something else. Time to market is more important. It's better to get something out than get it right. Like I've worked with organizations that are very much about experiments, which I just had a hard time with because we learned things that had very clear implications to what they were 
putting out. And they said, yeah, that may be true, but we're going to put something out. And then, you know, after a period of time, I think they were on a kind of an annual basis. After a year, we can, um, you know, we can see how we perform with these different options. So even though we had, you know, an insight that would drive a decision, their kind of product culture, I guess, worked very differently. And um, boy, I was really late in the game when we kind of uncovered that. Uh, we think we th- thought we were more on the same page. So there, there is sort of a trying to figure out what is going on. Why isn't it being done? Um, you know, maybe research is just seen as validation, like I was talking about before, and not seen as kind of a strategic tool. You know, who are the people that are holding those beliefs, and how are they influencing? You know, the steps that people are taking. You know, uh, what do project timelines look like and, you know, what's being allowed and what's not being allowed. I've seen uh, people be successful to a certain extent, you know, ask for forgiveness, not permission, or maybe just just doing it, right? Just going out and doing something scrappy and small to answer their own questions and kind of making those things available in small ways. And I think there's some best sort of best practices around that, uh, that that I've seen. Uh, like I worked with a, a team that would do uh, a hack day style research that was really just about getting people out in the field. And they weren't really doing a lot of analysis or or really anything, but they were just getting people out to talk to users. And so they could kind of fly under the radar with that a little bit. It wasn't, you know, a multi-week thing and it wasn't, you know, impacting projects. It was just, you know, giving people that holy crap moment where they go talk to someone and realize that how they talk about their life and their goals and how they're using your product is different in fundamental ways. And so that was, you know, that was sort of a slow burn kind of culture change operation that every month they would do this for a day and it grew and grew and grew and they brought more people in and um, they, so they set it up in kind of a positive way. I thought that was really neat where, um, if you attended as kind of a, an observer or a note taker for several times, then they gave you um, this symbolic lab coat. And like the people that ran this went and got lab coats stitched with the company logo, which clearly <laughs> was a thing that like the brand police would not have been happy about, right? But they did it anyway. They just had enough money to buy these things. And so they had a little ceremony in their prep sessions where they would, you know, say, now so-and-so has been with us four times. They're now able to lead their own. We want to present them with this jacket. And so they created a really positive kind of want-in thing. And they were working, you know, at sort of mid-level and kind of leadership level. And they were not making so much noise that anyone would stop them. And they would run these sessions, these debrief workshops that we would do after this day of kind of going out and talking to people. We'd, they ran them once in the kitchen because they couldn't get a conference room. But people kept walking by and like, oh, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? Oh, we spent the day talking to customers. Cool. And then they'd kind of go about their business. So it started to become, you can see sort of seeding some viral aspects of, of this change as opposed to kind of going all the way to the top and saying, we have to go about it this way. They were, uh, you know, finding any opening and kind of just, just kind of filling in like, uh, in kind of a, they weren't trying to challenge the status quo. They were trying to kind of bring people along slowly and gently, you know, and eventually that company ended up hiring like a director of research and, (laughs) uh, you know, then that, and I think just staffed up enormously, from that. So it became an important thing for them. 
but in the early days, it seemed almost sad, right? You guys are barely doing anything. You're not using the data. There's so much potential here. But they kind of went about it, I think, in sort of a slow and, and positive way. And I think, you know, in that circumstance, that was kind of an effective technique. I think we, we could come up with organizations we know where that's never going to work because this and this and this. But here, I think that was, you know, a little bit under the radar, but very much inviting people in, making it fun, you know, looking for very small wins, letting people sort of feel and touch the world outside the building, you know, I think is, is an interesting kind of slow technique. And I think, you know, a principle that can kind of underlie a lot of this is, is not asking for process. You know, there's a difference between saying, we need to have two weeks in the schedule to set up this thing versus we want to provide information to ensure the decisions that are being made are the right ones. And I think it's naive, it's seductively naive to talk about how you want to work and less so uh, to talk in the language of the person you're trying to persuade um, and to sort of say, here's why this is better for you and less about here's what I want to do. Um, so it's not a feel-good sort of uh, kind of story, but it's an, an outcome story. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking this is, it becomes less about executions and more about the outcome. And that's a really important distinction to make, uh, especially when, you know, for designers, particularly from, I'm, I'm thinking about this from my own perspective, because oftentimes we're asked for a, a thing at the end and, uh, and often what is really needed is an outcome as a result of a thing or many things, uh, something happens as an outcome. And, uh, that's an interesting juxtaposition. And that's even more of a challenge for those of us that work as vendors where deliverables in the procurement process is about, you know, articulating what the deliverables are. Uh, so you can't sell on, you might be able to sell on outcomes, but you can't get through the vendor process on outcomes. You have to say, here's the list of deliverables. And, you know, people are kind of gatekeeping new research projects based on, Undeliverables, not not outcomes. Uh, so it's, it's you sort of have to you have to be able to talk about both, you know. And I, I'm sure some of that is true for folks that work in house as well. So a few years back, you wrote a book called Doorbells, Dangers, and Dead Batteries about the highs and lows of research, and you've told us a few war stories. Is there something that stands out in your mind that is a research trip that you did, or a particular research gig that you did that's really wild or something really interesting that you could share? I don't know if I have a story that's wild that's not in the book. You know, I mean, it's, it's funny because we, we try hard to avoid the wild, right? Um, <laughs> like that's the, and yet it happens anyway. I think that's kind of the, that's the tension of, of doing the research. Um, I don't know. I had an interesting experience a couple of years ago I think I wrote about this briefly in the book, but I can say a little bit more about it, where we had recruited people that were um, running small businesses. like, And there was very, very specific questions that they were asked about, is this business your primary thing? Does you know all or most of your income come from it? Is this where you spend your time? Like We were very clear that we didn't want somebody with a, you know, a part-time Etsy store who works in you know, a 
some other kind of environment. We didn't want to get them to come as a, as a small business owner. We wanted people that were, you know, legitimately living and running and doing a small business. And so I end up in the home of, um, I mean, a Silicon Valley executive, the guy was wearing his badge when he met me at the door from a Fortune 500 company. And I, I sort of thought, oh, he's, you know, that's one of his customers. I mean, he's an enterprise small business guy and he's got a badge because he's on site and he's, you know, whatever, installing and configuring. And that was kind of the, the assumption that I had about why he had this badge. And the more I talked to him, the more it became clear that like his life was 85% about this full-time job that he had as at an executive level. And I just, you know, it starts to dawn on you like, Oh, this is something is wrong here and it's further compounded. And I want to be careful what I say, because you go into these environments, you don't know what's going on, but there was just, there was like a tense family dynamic going on that I couldn't understand uh, like, you know, this was the home, the whole family was there. And so I, I, I'm not able to say because I don't know what the situation was, but you start getting some strange vibes and some comments are made and people are smiling and laughing, but things seem uncomfortable. So there's kind of that cloud hanging over it. And then I start to feel kind of caught up in what is happening here. Did I make a mistake? Did the people that found him for me make a mistake? Did this person just flat out lie to somebody in order to get in this conversation? Which is crazy, you know, what would motivate someone to do that? There's not, this is a, again, an executive. There's no like $200 incentive that's going to change his life, you know, that, that would motivate him to spend two hours with me predicated on a lie. And so you sit there you know, I think part of what's wild is is that delta between is something wrong or is something normal, and I have to carry on as something as normal because I can't really ascertain is this an honest mistake or not. And uh, it was just very, very uncomfortable. And I, I, you know, I've done enough of these where I have certainly encountered people who have misrepresented themselves in order to be involved in the study, and sometimes it's just purely for money. Uh, and you do everything you can to kind of prevent that from happening. But it happens, and it's just, it's so unsettling. You know, when you talk about a wild thing that happened, like there's a story in the book about a guy um, getting taken on a you know, Coke-fueled run to a Miami <laughs> strip club uh, where, um, you know, in a sports car with, you know, forced lap dances. Like, I don't, you know, that's in the book, and like that story is astonishing. You know, I haven't had that experience. This was much more of an internal experience where, Everything that's happening on the surface is normal. I just ran the interview like I would run the interview. But inside, I am sort of churning about a thing that I can't assess in the moment and I can't resolve. And so that's sort of an, like an, a lot of internal chaos, but it's not quite as dramatic as, you know, the sports car and the strip club story. But, and, you know, I like, I followed up with my recruiter afterwards and said, well, you know, what's going on? Because here's what I saw. And they, were so adamant that they asked him these questions and he gave them these answers. And it's it's not resolvable, right? It's it's not like, oh, it must have been for this reason. There's no explanation. This was a successful individual, again, an executive. I'm sure he and I have multiple LinkedIn connections in common. Like there's it's someone that I'm in the same world with, you know, here in Silicon Valley. And um there's no explanation that I am able to get. There might be one, but I, 
don't have sort of access to get it. And so, you know, you're left sort of with a, an odd feeling during and the inability to resolve it afterwards about, you know, how to feel, what's right, was there a failure, who to blame, like all those things kind of go on. And that's, again, no no cocaine, but, uh, you know, some, <laughs> some emotional turmoil. I feel pressure to tell you like a cocaine story. And I, don't, I, just, I just don't have one. I'm sorry. Well, I'll tell you something weird that kind of counters that. So have you heard of ASMR? Yes. It's Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. And if anybody doesn't know what that is, check Maybe out- Maybe we should demonstrate it for everybody. By <laughs> whispering into the microphone. Yes. yes. Okay. okay. I want to hear your story. Should I do it in a whisper? Maybe I should just do it normally. Yeah. Um, if anybody wants to know about ASMR, check out the documentary Braingasm. It's basically the idea that you, you know, when people whisper really softly, it makes your brain get tingly. Um, when I was a kid, you know, we had a thing called a telephone in our house and people would ring up to do surveys and I really liked getting called up for surveys. And it kind of, now I think that it was giving me a kind of ASMR feeling from doing it. I would get a little bit of a tingly brain sensation from people asking me questions. So I don't know, people like talking about themselves often. I'm not saying that's the reason that happened in your story, but that's my own story about that. Yeah, I mean, I think people like talking about themselves is is the is the truth that this whole enterprise rests upon. But I hadn't thought about it as like an ASMR kind of response. That's interesting. You know, maybe maybe some people just like being interviewed. I've, I mean, I've, I've definitely had a few experiences myself where similar things happen. Um, I did go and interview one person once who was it openly stated to us from the moment that we got there um, that – they were basically a professional research participant because they got paid to do it and that was a way that they could make extra cash. And I guess that's something that you have to be careful of when you are getting um, recruiters to find you people because, you know, you might not necessarily get the response that you need from someone who's recruited in that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I've definitely had experiences with professional respondents, as they call them, who are clearly lying and it's yeah, it's it's just confounding. It's so yeah. I think the screening question they sometimes use is to you know ask people how often they've participated or when they last participated. But if they are lying as part of the study, they're not going to answer that question honestly. So um, <laughs> so it's all just it's all just skewed from the start, <laughs> right? It, it it does assume you know honesty, uh, and I you know I think the good thing is. I think we're rarely fooled by those people. It becomes clear. Uh, the more you do this, anyway, you start to understand sort of who's kind of presenting to you. You know, when you ask to see a device and like it's, oh, that's in my other house or, you know, my stepdaughter took it away, you start to realize, oh, yeah, those are the cues of someone who's, who's making it up. I mean, you know, and we're sort of fixating on that aspect of it, right? That is... It's the rarity. I think part of the fun of telling these stories is not to say all these terrible things happen, but just to say interesting, weird, surprising, funny, sad, upsetting stories happen as part of it. It's just part of the whole, the whole mix. Um, and that you know, if you you know spend your career with very few of these kinds of things, good. But 
it's a different way of talking about the reality of people. And it sort of reminds us that just like uh, deliverables versus outcomes, you know, I think participants versus real messy humans is the same kind of split. And I think, you know, that's why I wrote the book, why I wanted to sort of tell other people's stories. The book is many, many other people's stories and a few of my own anecdotes of just trying to paint a more humanized picture of what research is like. I think uh, it's interesting because there's the stories that people tell you um, when you're doing research and then there's the story of you doing the research. And uh, in my mind, I have this one particular research trip that I did in the Philippines and um, the thing that stands out to me, I mean, there was fantastic things that that came out of the research that we were doing and there was a big team of us and, and it was amazing and we were working with people in call centres and we it was really, really interesting. But the thing that kind of sticks out in my mind is actually some of the things that happened to our team during the research. So, you know, we had things like missing our planes, getting caught in a typhoon. We didn't have a car, we should have hired a car or we should have had a driver because we had no idea what the traffic was like in Manila. One of the team members went to catch their flight back to Australia and the taxi driver kind of kidnapped them because they didn't have cash. All the things that you don't think about when you're going to do research, they happened to us on that on that particular research trip. And so, you know, we, ha- we got great insights and the client was just amazed. But at the same time, we sort of went through this wild adventure of our own um, on the backside of, of what was actually happening on the trip. And I, I think that's, you know, those are sort of terrible and wonderful and they may be funny in hindsight or, or they just they feel differently in hindsight. And, you know, there's tactical lessons to be learned from that. Like you said, oh, next time we go to, you know, this kind of environment, we're going to hire a driver. So... I think at one level, the stories are just, here's things that we should remember to do better at, uh, either for yourself or for somebody that hears your story, right? Somebody's hearing your story right now and thinking, oh yeah, I should get a driver. And I think at that practical level, that's a great outcome. And then there's this sort of softer, sort of humanizing, and like we said, it humanizes researchers, right? Researchers mm-hmm. make mistakes, they're people they they uh and so who can't hear your story and help but have empathy for you and hopefully modeling having empathy for themselves the next time they don't bring enough batteries or forget to turn on the recorder or meet someone who's drunk or end up you know having to help someone you know use their walker to get to the taxi or whatever kind of thing they end up having to do that sort of challenges what they thought their work was about you know hopefully telling these kinds of stories has sort of the the two levels of of outcomes for us it sort of softens and humanizes us in our relationships with other people and gives us empathy for the mistakes or the I hate to call them mistakes. They're just sort of the realities the, of those kinds of situations and, and prepares us for the fact that we can't prepare for everything. That's also the, the other lesson I take away is that, yeah, you can remember now to hire a driver, but there's still another thing that you didn't know that's going to happen. And so how are you going to deal with that? And, you know, I would love to always have the grace that I'm sure you and your team had, uh, you know, in their sort of ideal sense as these things were going on you know, to cope with that. That's just life. And research kind of exposes you to different aspects of it that maybe you wouldn't otherwise get to sample. 
So some years ago you did a talk in Hong Kong called You've Done All the Research, Now What? What do you do after you've done the research? How, what do you do? How do you gather all that information and make it into something? Yeah, I think about it as sort of two levels. I guess I'm just going to make everything into two levels. That will be my, my framework for every question you ask me. Um, <laughs> there's two aspects to the research. There's the ex- And it actually builds on, I think, what you're saying about your team. There's the experience you have doing the research, and then there's the data that you gathered. So the experience is, it's in the conversations you have in the car afterwards. It's in the text you send back to the office to tell somebody else what happened. It's, it's all sort of reflective. It's the shower thoughts, uh, the dog walk reflections. It's what you're thinking about as you are kind of immersed in all this stuff. And it's very rich and it's powerful, but it's super biased as well. Like we remember things disproportionately and we forget other things and we magnify and we distort. And, you know, so what I see teams doing is kind of not spending the time with their data. They go do some research and they, I just call it like debrief. You kind of sit down and you talk about what happened and you whiteboard it and use your stickies and whatever kind of sexy tool that you're using right now. And you kind of talk about what happened and then that's it. Like that's the output. And I think that's, you know, it's an iceberg model, right? The deeper you go, the, the more mass and volume there is. And what I am a big fan of, even though this takes more time, I mean, it's substantially more time, is to go back and listen to or read transcripts or watch or, or, or revisit all of the data, the, the recordings, not your memories of the recordings, and so then you're doing a more intentional kind of analytical process. And I think, you know, I think about analysis and synthesis. I, had, I use these words forever until finally I looked them up. Analysis is taking a big thing and breaking it down into smaller things to kind of make sense of it. So you have a two-hour interview and you pull out uh, you know, 12 kind of quotes or sort of moments in the interview that were really important. That's analysis. Synthesis is taking small pieces and building them up into something new. So you have to do some analysis, right? You have to break all these larger elements down. And so when you are, by the way, when you are like texting somebody or debriefing or reflecting in the shower, all those things are are analysis. You're pulling small parts out of this sort of huge monolithic element of of the, the interview of the data so that you start practicing that right away. But then going back to your your actual data and uh, you know seeing what actually was said because it's always different than what you think that you heard. What you think you heard is really interesting and important. It's a good starting point for this process, but I really want people to go back to what the data actually said and uh, allow themselves to be surprised. Oh, that's a little different. Oh, there's something else here that we kind of ignored. And do that, breaking it down into quotes and anecdotes and then building it back up into patterns and themes and frameworks and models and, you know, those lovely two-by-twos that we love to create that start to show what relationships are and where gaps are. Um, but you've got, to do, you've got to do the breaking down and the building up, uh, and you've got to do it with the data, not what your reflections, your kind of debriefs are. And, and that, that's an investment of time, and I think, you know, you have to decide, does the research question we're investigating merit that level of, of scrutiny? Maybe it's something pretty closed-ended. If you're trying to figure out, you know, 
what are the breakdowns in this process for people? You might be able to just sort of observe that. If you're trying to understand, uh, you know, how are people tracking their careers and what tools are they using to, to support them along that way, uh, and what are the opportunities there, then, yeah, you need to go back to your data and really see what was being said and what does it really mean and what are the patterns and what, are we kind of, what can we build from that. Yeah, oftentimes I think that there's so much pressure to, certainly with with analysis and synthesis, to do it really quickly. Someone recently said to me, you know, can't we sort of make something shorter in terms of the research? And it's it's like, well, it's really it really depends on on what you're willing to sacrifice, right? Yeah. Because you know, if you if you spend less time, if you put pressure on people to do research in a shorter period of time or analysis in a shorter period of time or synthesis in a shorter period of time what you're really saying is well you know we we're not putting as much importance on these things as we want you to think we are you know it's it seems a shame to squeeze those things if you could get a better result by just spending a little bit more time and i think you you modeled a nice answer to one of your earlier questions for me which was about how do you advocate for you know doing research well i'm i'm paraphrasing you but being able to push back with the trade-offs, as I think you just described, I think is really important. So, you know, again, it's different to say, well, we need, you know, eight days, you know, with all these people to kind of get everything out of the out of the research. It's that's different than saying, you know, if we work through this in two days, here's what we will produce for the team. If we work through it in eight days, here's what we will produce with the team. So Let's just all agree that we're comfortable with those trade-offs. That's a really – that's sage advice, I think, um, the way that you just described that. I think that's something that most people who – anybody who's putting a proposal together for research could use immediately that rather than looking at at how you propose research as, oh, we'll have eight days to do that, try to explain if we do it for two days, this is what will happen and if we do it for – three days, this is what will happen. That's very, very valuable. It's back to the outcomes versus deliverables, right? The outcome is we're going to learn this and we're going yeah. to be able to use it for that. You know, and that's not a, now it's not an us versus them thing. It's like, let's agree together on what we want to invest and what we need to have. One of the most common questions that I've certainly been asked and I, and I hear people ask is, how much research do you do? And I always say it's a bit like how long is a piece of string, you know, but thinking about it in that way, rather than worrying about how many people do we need to go and talk to, you know, it's more about, well, the more that you can do it, the more information that you're going to gather. Yeah. Greg Bernstein, who works at Vox, has been doing, um, the title may have changed, but I think he's been doing talks, and I'm sure this is online somewhere in video or slideshare form, called uh, Be More Certain. And you know he sort of describes the whole gamut of you know what available timelines are where he's asked to you know provide value or give guidance or and so this idea of you know certainty kind of on a continuum and that you know not to I'm probably not going to tell the story right but he had some some situation where uh, something came up on the Slack channel about like how to name some feature. And um, he like put a Slack poll out and got a handful of responses. So it was just a very quick exercise, but it, it gave him enough insight about a thing that was outside his own experience that he could you know, turn around and make uh, 
you know, make a recommendation. Like that's not a research project that's going in anyone's portfolio. It sort of fails on all the measures of like good research or whatever. That, but it was exactly the right way that he could support people in making a decision. And you know, again, he's oriented towards the outcomes that um, you know that his colleagues have, and that he's being asked to to support, and uh, you know, willing to. Clearly, I don't mean that he never pushes back, but that he's you know able to identify these sort of small moments uh, as well as large moments. And, uh, it's, it's a nice way of thinking about it, I think. This has been an awesome conversation and I'm sure that we could keep going on and on and on. Uh, before we go, I'd like to ask you two more things. So what do you think of all of the things that you've learned, what do you think is the most important thing that you've learned about research? I mean, the most important thing I've learned about research is about myself which I don't mean that to be in sort of an egomaniacal framing, but, you know, research is a person-to-person activity. And so every time I go talk to somebody, I come in with my own experiences and my own biases about being in the world as I have been in the world and my own uh, expectations about what I'm going to see based on, you know, how they've been sampled and what the uh, research product is about you know, and so to to do that well means being able to hear my own judgment. I don't mean like I'm I can't be anything but the product of my own experiences, but I can be more open to having them challenged or dismantled or reflected back in a different way. It's actually one of my favorite things about research is that feeling you get when you kind of get this oh like that an assumption you have made, and I don't mean a profound assumption about the value this product is bringing. I mean, it could be about anything, you know, this person that you're meeting and what their, what their life is like and how they're talking about things, you know, feeling that sort of that, that thing crumble is just like, uh, it's just so rewarding that I feel like, Oh, I am learning about the world and learning about myself because I've, dismantled a presumption that I didn't know that I had. So I that keeps happening. I'm not finalized in that regard. I keep discovering my biases, prejudices, assumptions. And uh, there's many reasons why I want to, why I love doing this work, but um, just that one is kind of a side benefit. It's just so, it feels like I'm always growing as a person. Well, Thank you for being on the show and for the little brain tingle that you've just given us. All right. Thank you. Great conversation. So there you have it. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Steve and would love to get your thoughts and feedback on the topic. To join the conversation, go to thisishcd.com and register to join our Slack channel where you can get in touch. We use our Slack channel to shape future episodes and share design-related content every day. It's also a great way to meet designers from around the globe. Thanks for listening. See you next time.